I want to read to us from Daniel chapter 6. As Drew said, we've been spending uh, some time in Daniel, and we are in chapter 6 this morning. Uh, it's, uh, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I'm going to read a chunk of it. If you have a Bible and want to open to it, or you want to pull out the Bible app on your phone, it's not going to be on the screen. Or you can just listen. Uh, the beautiful part of the, the first half of Daniel is it's a, it's a, it weaves a very vivid picture of, of the events that happened to Daniel and to his friends. So it's a, um, easy to imagine what some of these scenes might have looked like. Daniel 6. It pleased Darius. Now, I have to stop right there and just say that Daniel already has made his way through three different kings. He's outlasted in Babylon. Darius is the third king that we know of that comes along uh, and is in charge now. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among these administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the entire kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and they said, may King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors, we've all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So, King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room, where the windows opened to Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king, and they spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? And the king answered, well, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. And then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel, and they threw him into the lion's den. And the king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually rescue you. God, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the example of Daniel. 
We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would open our hearts and our ears to hear from you this morning. That you would use my words. That you would use conversations that we have. That you would use these songs. That you would speak to us. That you would change us by your power. That we would leave here not just thinking some new thoughts, but changed from the inside out by the power of your Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I stopped where I stopped, uh, which is not where that chapter... Normally, the emphasis of that chapter is on Daniel in the lion's den. And uh, if you're not familiar with how that chapter ends, I'll tell you, Daniel does not get eaten by the lions. Uh, That's kind of the summary of the last half of the chapter. Uh, And that's the part that we usually emphasize with our children when we're telling the story, is Daniel in the lion's den, and there's an angel, and he shuts the mouths of the lions, and there's... There's all this art that's created from those paintings from this chapter that just feature Daniel in this big pit hanging with these very relaxed-looking lions. Um, but I am, I am more interested in what happens before this, in the part that I just read. I'm more interested in uh, these two elements of Daniel's life that we see, uh, how he is living his life in exile. And it has to do with uh, Daniel's work, how his faith comes to bear on his work, and, uh, and how Daniel prays and what he prays for. I, I was telling some folks, I was in Spokane um, this last week for a couple of days. Most of you know, uh, six weeks ago, my mom suffered a pretty major stroke and is recovering from that and is very, very slowly making progress on regaining uh, skills that she used to have that for us are second nature, like balance, uh, the ability to bring a fork to your mouth and things like that. And she's improving by God's grace. We're very, very grateful, but it's, uh, it's a slow slog. It's, it's, uh, it's hard. It's tough. Um, but one of, the, uh, one of the blessings that I've got to witness in the midst of this is the power of the church coming around people and loving them. And my sister and I, Becky, we've experienced that love for many of you, and my parents in Spokane have experience this incredible surrounding of their church and their community, uh, supporting them, providing meals. I mean, my dad has had to turn away offers for help because there's just no more room in the freezer and there's nothing left to be done in the house. <laughs> so uh, it's, it really is. It's an, uh, Jesus says, uh, one of his last uh, inst- instructions to his disciples in John is, the world's going to know you're my disciples by how you love each other. And I feel like anybody that uh, knows my mom that's watching her story unfold and the support the church around them is witnessing that. Uh, but going back home is always a little bit of a trip down memory lane because my dad still, well, my parents still live in the same house that uh, they moved into when I was a month old. The carpet is the same. The drapes are the same. The, uh, every, everything is the same. There's, maybe there's a new dishwasher, but um, it, it just it triggers all kinds of memories since I uh, grew up there, obviously. And one of the things my dad was saying that uh, has been provided for him is someone to mow the lawn once a week, so he doesn't have to do that. And in his mid-70s, it's, this is a great gift. Uh, but it got me thinking, that was my first job. That was my first paid employment. It was sort of outside the realm of uh, the duties that I had to do, just the chores around the house that we all did. Um, my parents paid me to mow the lawn, and, and as I uh, got older, I started mowing neighbors' lawns. Uh, and my parents wanting to instill in me the value of hard work and that, um, and I think some of their, their limited understanding of kind of how business works, 
they rented me their lawnmower so that I could mow the neighbor's lawns. So the neighbor would pay me 10 bucks to mow the lawn, and I would pay them $2 for gas and maintenance on the lawnmower. Um, my dad, really, he really wanted me to understand uh, what it meant to work hard and that sometimes you have to spend money to make money. And he wanted to instill in me uh, this truth from Colossians 3, that whatever you do, you're to work at it with all of your heart, as though you're working for the Lord, not for human masters. My dad, uh, since we're talking about him, uh, spent his, his entire uh, career until he retired last year in the academic world. But he really valued manual labor. Uh, his dad had been a machinist, made car parts. And uh, at Whitworth University, where my dad worked, uh, he knew all the names of all the maintenance guys. He knew all the names of all the security guys. And every Christmas, when he would make fudge, we would get a little bit of the fudge, but most of it would go to the physical plant, to the maintenance department where those guys would have it on their break room table for a couple of weeks. So this sense of whatever we do in our work, that we do it for the Lord, not for the human bosses, the human masters that we have. Um, I'm very grateful that my dad sought to instill that in me. And in Daniel, I think, in this, in this chapter, we get a glimpse into what that looked like for him. That Daniel... Um, this whole, this whole book of, of Daniel's life in exile, so much of it centers around uh, Daniel's work, Daniel's job, uh, which for him was in the government. So much of the Bible takes place within this context of work, right? Jesus' parables, his teaching, his life, it's, it's just shot through with work. His parables are filled with stories of, of people doing their work. It's easy to imagine him uh, with some of his disciples just pointing over to a field and saying, look, there's... There's a sower sowing seed, doing his job. I want to tell you how that reflects the kingdom of God. Right? He meets people in the midst of their work. And in the Old Testament, um, Moses encounters God in the burning bush, not during his morning devotionals, not at worship uh, with uh, the, other, uh, the other Israelites, but in his job. He's a shepherd. He's watching sheep, and he's out in the field watching sheep, and that's where he encounters God in the burning bush. Uh, and as we talk about work this morning, I, I want us to have a broad understanding of what that means, right? Because uh, most of us here have some sort of paid employment, but not all of us. And I think uh, we certainly need to think of work in the context of our paid employment, but also in terms of uh, what we are contributing to the world and to our neighbors, where we are spending our time. And so if you can think broadly in those categories of time uh, and what it is that you're contributing, then things like parenting, uh, that's, a, that's a big job, right? Places where we're volunteering. All of these, I think, are, are areas of life that can be brought under this, uh, this category of work. So, so that's work. Uh, we're also talking about exile, right? What does it mean to be people who are living in exile? Trusting that there is a resonance between Israel's experience of being in exile and our experience here in 2017 in Seattle. That we are no longer in the promised land. Maybe we've never been in the promised land, but we have some sense of longing for the promised land. We have some sense of longing that one day Christ will return and make all things new. And, and, and part of how we long for that is, is we recognize that things are not all right right now. Um, that sense of longing uh, as a definitive feature for, for the Christian faith is one that I really love. Cornelius Plantinga describes 
a virtuous Christian this way, uh, as one who longs in certain classic ways, right? Virtuous Christian isn't necessarily the one that does all the right things, but it's one who longs in the right directions. And I think that's part of what it means to be an exile, is to long for that day when exile will end, when all things will be made new, when the gospel will have uh, saturated every aspect of our own individual lives and of our world. So, as people who are in exile, um, work becomes for us one of the primary places where our faith is lived publicly. Our work, our jobs, the places where we are spending our time volunteering, uh, these are the places where our faith becomes visible. Our faith is lived out and becomes public. Um, It's the place where God shapes us. It's the place where God meets us, like Moses in the burning bush. Um, I I was thinking about Zacchaeus as well, who uh, has an encounter with Jesus and the, the way that we know that he was changed by that encounter is that his business practices change. Uh, he stops overcharging people for his services. Daniel's work as an administrator in this government is where his faith becomes public. It's where his faith becomes visible. In verse 3 we read, Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. So his, the character traits, you know, what we would call character traits, uh, they become visible in his work. They become public to the world to the people that he works with, to the people that he helps govern through his job as an administrator. It's, it's, it's marvelous just to think of how remarkable this is, right? Daniel is, he's a captured, exiled Israelite. Uh, in many ways, he's sort of the property of Babylon. He's been taken away with some of their most valuable resources. Um, and instead of huddling up with his fellow Israelites, sort of just waiting out the exile, or instead of Uh, using his position of power and authority to uh, exercise power the way the world does and try to overthrow the Babylonians or, you know, uh, usurp them in some way. Um, Daniel is helping the enemy country to thrive. He's making life easier for the enemy king, putting his administrative skills to use in the service of people who are not his people. And I think that Daniel does this because he has read the prophet Jeremiah. We actually read this a couple chapters later, that Daniel was familiar with Jeremiah. And Jeremiah wrote a letter to the Israelites in exile. And you may have heard this before. This is a very familiar verse uh, when it comes to helping us understand how to live in exile. But this is Jeremiah 29.7. Seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. (laughs) There's uh, an early church father, this is from the 3rd or 4th century, who was commenting on this passage, uh, at the irony that Darius would make a decree outlawing praying to God, when in fact 
the kinds of prayers that God's people would be praying would be for his flourishing, right? Would be for his success. Um, I just thought that was funny. That, uh, an early church father pointed out the irony of that. Um, so this verse of seeking the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you, praying to God for it, for the city. Here we, we get a glimpse into how Daniel's prayer life uh, impacted his work. I think that one of the most powerful phrases in this whole chapter is in verse 10. Um, when Daniel learns about this decree, his response is basically to do what he's been doing all along. He goes home to his upstairs room where these windows open towards Jerusalem, and three times a day he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. I think the author here is trying to make a point that Daniel heard about this decree, and and his prayers were not necessarily, oh God, what do I do now? How How do I handle this crisis? But Daniel's prayers were consistent with what he had been praying before, which, because he's familiar with Jeremiah, we can trust that his prayers have been for the flourishing of Babylon. And we see this in the way that he both practices his work, the way that he he does his job, that he is seeking the flourishing of the city, but also the way that he prays for his city, that he prays for the various kings that he's had to serve. It's been his habit regularly to pray for his city and for his work. And I, uh, in thinking about this, just have recognized that I don't know that that's a big part of my prayer life. Um, I don't know what you pray for, uh, but that may be a challenge to us this morning from this passage, to really take seriously this call to pray for our city. And, And to do it, that can be even... Even talking about praying for our city can be such a big, vague thing. Like, what, what does that mean? How do we pray for our city? But think of it this way. What if you prayed for your particular work, your company that you work for? What would it mean to pray for the flourishing of Amazon, for the flourishing of Seattle Pacific University, for the flourishing of Greenwood Physical Therapy? What would, what would that look like if we started praying for the flourishing of these places um, as a means towards God's flourishing of Seattle? As soon as we say that, we have to ask ourselves the question, okay, well, what do we mean by flourishing? (laughs) What does that mean? Because each of those places would probably define it for themselves pretty differently. Amazon clearly has a definition for what it means for them to flourish. Seattle Pacific, uh, even our small little nonprofits and churches here and there, we have a definition of what it means for us to flourish. And so as we pray in and for these places, we have to have our imagination shaped by God's vision for flourishing. Uh, and the biblical word for this is often used as is shalom, right? It's the writing of all of these relationships. It's a recognition that um, it's not just the bottom line, though that's a part of it, um, but it's, it's a relational thing, that there are people who uh, purchase the products that your company makes. Pray for them. There are people who, who harvest the raw materials that your company uses to make whatever it is that you make. Pray for them, for their flourishing. Uh, You have bosses. Pray for their flourishing. Pray that they would have wisdom to lead well. Uh, I I have, over the last couple years, as I've stepped into the role of pastor at this church, I now uh, oversee people. I I, I have uh, 
We have a very small staff here that is fantastic and awesome and works hard, but I have, uh, I have a job to do to see that they flourish in their roles, trusting that if they are flourishing in their, in their roles and their responsibilities, that our church will flourish a little bit more. I was thinking about this with parenting, too. Uh, that's another big part of, <laughs> of my life and of many of our lives. Uh, and, and rethinking what it means to flourish as a parent and for my kids to flourish. And uh, I have to confess that often I approach parenting with this attitude of, I just want them to do what I want them to do when I want them to do it. And when they don't, that's when problems happen. Uh, but if I have a perspective of, of flourishing, of my kids flourishing and of me flourishing as a parent, um, in light of Jesus' call to make disciples, if I can think of my, my job as a father as I'm helping to make disciples of my kids, that shifts my thinking, that shifts my orientation towards them, and I think hopefully helps us as a family flourish just a little bit more. I think there's another, uh, another lesson in here about where and when we pray, right? Daniel's three times a day, he prays. And he has a, a particular place that he, he prays in his house, but it's, it's with some open windows. It's, it's clear from another part in the passage that people can see him praying in there. So it's not this private hidden act necessarily. It's a, um, and, and I wonder if, if instead of only praying uh, at church or by ourselves in quiet time, um, if we thought about what, what, would it, what would it mean to pray at my work? What would that look like? M- might we pray for different things? Might we pray for uh, the flourishing of our company in, in a way that is, is filled with gospel imagination for what a flourishing company could look like? Uh, it can be a bit daunting, I think, to compare ourselves and our situations to Daniel's. Um, but I'm encouraged because I believe that God uses each one of us to this end, to the, the flourishing of our city, um, in whatever situation we find ourselves in. I see evidence of God's grace in this, in this chapter when I look at what Daniel actually says and does, which is, truthfully, very little. Um, and God uses him in a profound way to impact the king and the kingdom. This is what Daniel does. Uh, he excels at his job. He, it's clear from the chapter one that God has imbued him with certain gifts, specific skills that have helped him to do well at this. And you have to trust that God has given you gifts for the work that you have to do. God fills each one of his creations with, with special gifts and abilities. And God has done that with you. God's done that with Daniel. And Daniel put those to use serving others. He excelled at his job. He prayed regularly. And finally, uh, he just gives a simple testimony of how God has saved him when the king asks, right? So uh, this is part that I didn't read, but um, Daniel doesn't say anything in this whole chapter until the morning after he's thrown into the lion's den. The king approaches him, hopeful that somehow God has saved him, and he's like, Daniel, are you there? And Daniel says, yes, God saved me. He sent an angel to close, uh, close the mouths of the lions. He gives a simple testimony of God's saving. There, at the end of this chapter, there is a profound song of praise to God, but it's not from Daniel. It's from the king. At the end of all of this, it's the king who says this. 
The God of Daniel is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He's rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. This Babylonian king writes this psalm of praise to God. And God uses you and me and the church in exile to draw out this kind of praise from a watching world. Peter, we've been quoting from 1 Peter a lot as we walk through this book of Daniel. 1 Peter uh, really uses a lot of this language of exiles. What does it mean for the church to be the church in exile? Peter writes this, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and as exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Live such good lives among the pagans, in your work, in your homes, amongst your neighbors, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. God sends us into our work as Daniels, not because we're so great, The gifts that we have, we have received as a gift from God. But because God's heart is so big, seeking the flourishing of this city that we're in, seeking the flourishing of the company, the organization, the place you volunteer, the flourishing of your home. These become little signposts pointing us in the direction of our longing, our longing when one day, for that day when God will make all things new, reconciling to himself all things in and through Christ. Let's pray as we prepare to come to the table this morning.